Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Here we finish out an amazing section of Scripture. What a blessed time we've had in this entire section of Scripture. And it's sad that it comes to an end, but as is always the case in God's Word, when we close the chapter on one section, we open it to a new section that is just as glorious to behold. What I want to do as we close out this section on the new birth, we are going to hear from Jesus as he speaks to Nicodemus, and then the conversation ends, and next week, actually next week we're going to do something a little bit different, but the following week we're going to pick it back up in John 3, and look at 20 through, 22 all the way through the end of the chapter 36. So we're going to take a big chunk in two weeks and finish out chapter 3. But this morning what we need to do in finishing out this section of the new birth is we need to take these last couple verses in context. And so for our time this morning, I want to read this section one last time. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. As we read, I'm going to make some notes as we go through and just some comments on it. And it will give us the context for our section this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, John chapter 3, verse 1, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, not asked, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus believed that Jesus was a man sent by God because of the signs. But Jesus, as had been said earlier, was not believing in his belief because his belief was not saving belief. Jesus knows that. He knows the heart of all men. So verse 3, he answers a question that Nicodemus never really asks. And he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of of God. You must be born again. How do you get to heaven? Well, the first thing that must happen is you must be born again. You cannot get to heaven unless you are born again. What is Jesus saying? He's using an analogy. It's a very simple one. What did you contribute to your physical birth? You and I contributed nothing. We did not get to choose whether we would be male or female. We did not get to choose the day we were going to be born, the family we were going to be born into. So too it is with the spiritual birth. God is the one that calls you. God is the one that breathes life into you. You do nothing to make the new birth happen. Nothing. Nicodemus, who is stuck in a religion of works to earn God's favor, says, how can this be? How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that's supposed to clarify. Maybe it fuddles our minds a little bit, but it clarifies to Nicodemus because Jesus is speaking of an Old Testament passage about the new covenant in Ezekiel. The water is forgiveness, cleansing, the cleansing of your sin and being born of the Spirit is a new heart, regenerated heart. Um, The passage talks about God's cleansing and forgiveness of your sins and also a new heart being placed into your body and an old heart being taken out, your soul um, that is being cleansed and a new heart that can now beat for Jesus Christ. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Verse 6, Nicodemus, even if you could be born again, it doesn't profit you anything because you need to be born from above, from the Spirit. The flesh can only produce flesh. The Spirit, however, will produce the spirit, spiritual being, a new life inside of you. Don't be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but it do, you do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't control the wind, you can't see the wind, um, you can only see its effects. Same thing with the birth of the Spirit, the new birth in your life. You can't tell it where to go, when to happen, It happens and you see its effects. Verse 9, Nicodemus, third question. There wasn't a question at the beginning, but it is simultaneously a statement and a question. Here, his third question, how can these things be this whole broad outworking? Number one, how is this system of religion possible? It seems impossible that God can grant you forgiveness when you do nothing. That's impossible in his system of religion. But number two, practically, how is this brought about? How is the new birth brought about? 
Jesus answers and says, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You should because you're the teacher of Israel. You know the Old Testament. You should understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. You do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You're not believing the simplicity of what I'm telling you. How are you going to believe if I give you more? And yet he does. The blessings of Jesus Christ is that he continues to give and lavish in grace the truth so that Nicodemus can believe. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So I was in heaven. I know the heavenly realities. I can explain them to you. And here's the explanation. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So he says, how do you receive the new birth? You must believe. You must believe. You can't do anything to get the new birth to happen, but belief is the way that you are saved. We looked at verse 16 in detail last week. The greatest verse in the Bible, God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest reason, the world, the greatest need. He gave, which is the greatest act. He, he gave his son, which is the greatest gift, so that whoever, the greatest opportunity given to everybody, it is a limitless offer. It is given to everyone. This is a free offer that's given to all people, to all humanity, to the world of which you and I were a part of at one time and have been called out of. Jesus even calls his disciples that in chapter 15. You are my disciples who I called out of the world. You were once the world, and I called you out of the world because I loved you and you believed. Believe the greatest response. In him, the greatest Savior should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, and eternal life is the greatest possession. But Jesus is going to continue, and he's going to explain and these verses are some of the richest verses in the New Testament, in my opinion. These verses are so profound. They seem complex when you first read them. They're actually very simple, and they tie everything in together. And it is amazing the way they do. So he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because, verse 17, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. God, I pray just as we prepare to embark on just an amazing, massive journey through these words that has such rich truth. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that we would set aside all of our preconceived ideas about who you are, about how you love, about why you love, about whom you love. And we would hear these verses as if we're hearing them for the first time, seeing your grace, seeing our sin, seeing your love as if we are seeing it and hearing of it for the first time. God, that's only possible through your spirit. So I pray that you would grant the gift of illumination in this room right now for our eyes to behold and our hearts to rejoice in and not kick against the truth in these verses. We love you and we thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. Bring the new birth, whether in this room, through this message right now to somebody sitting here, whether in these verses, through this message, to somebody who will listen to this later, or whether this message will go with us as we leave from here and we share it with others around us, God, bring salvation to souls so that you would be glorified. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.
these verses, verses 17 through 21, we can kind of break up into three parts. The first part is verses 17 through 18. It's really kind of the introduction to a new section. It's still in the same section, but the reason why it's new is it's because Jesus begins to use new language, new terminology. And you can see it right off the bat. He has not been talking in the terms that he has or that he's using here. He's been speaking in different terms. So there's a little bit of a different shift, just a tiny shift. And that's the introduction, verses 17 through 18. Then verses 19 through 20 deal with unbelief, the foundation of unbelief. Why do people not believe? This is such a logical passage. I don't know if you're like me, but when I read the Bible, there are so many times where I read it so black and white, cut and dry, mechanical, technical, that it doesn't flow, it doesn't make sense. This makes sense. It's logical. If Jesus says anyone who believes can be saved, the logical question is, well, why won't everybody believe? Why doesn't everybody believe if that's all it takes to get into heaven? And Jesus is going to answer that in these verses. He's going to give us the foundation for why people do not believe. The foundation for unbelief, verses 19 through 20. And then he's going to give us the foundation for belief, verse 21. So introduction, 17 through 18. Um, the foundation of unbelief, verses 19 through 20, and then belief, which is in the foundation of belief in verse 21. Let's start with this little introduction, verses 17 and 18. Jesus uses some new language. He says, God did not send the Son, so he gave the Son in verse 16, but he sent the Son in verse 17. He sent with a task, and the task was, number one, to glorify him, by, number two, saving souls, through, number three, dying on the cross. That's Jesus' mission. Glorify the Father through saving souls by dying on the cross. That is the Son's mission. He was sent into the world. But we see a new word that we haven't seen thus far in this section. He was sent into the world not to judge the world. That word judge, it's the first time we've seen that word, judge. New language. We've been talking in death and life. We've been talking in belief and unbelief. Now we're talking courtroom, judge, condemn, or go free. Talking in new language here. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. He sent the Son to, not to judge, but that the world might be saved through him. End of verse 17. If, if Jesus did not come to judge, the question is, well, what did he come to do? Well, we already know that in verse 16. He came to save. But if you're anything like me, you read something and you go, hang on. Jesus judges all the time in the New Testament. For goodness sakes, he, he calls Judas a, a son of, his, of perdition, a son of hell, and he says it would be better for you if, it had never been, if you had never been born. And he tells the Pharisees that um, they are blind men leading the blind. They do a better job at leading people to hell than they do at leading people to heaven. He makes very judgmental statements. He absolutely judges. It seems awfully judgmental in his teachings and some of the things that he says. And because I've been reading through John, I just kind of read through it. Um, before we studied, I read through it every day for a month. And now as we're inside of it, I read it every once in a while. Usually once a week, I'll just read the whole thing through in one sitting just to see context. And so as I read this, Instantly ringing in my ears is John chapter 9. I cannot wait until we get to this section. Turn to John chapter 9, verse 39. John 9, the man born blind. You need to know the context because that will make sense for what Jesus is about to say. And we'll get to this thoroughly when we get to it. But just to make my problem a little bit harder, seems like Jesus is judgmental. Seems like he was sent to judge people. Yet John 3 says he wasn't. But John 9, 39 says... And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Um, now, here's where a superficial reader of Scripture would go, oh, excuse me, contradiction, inconsistencies, throw the Bible away. And I know and I pray and I trust that you are not a superficial reader of Scripture. There is a way that these work, and in fact, what Jesus is saying in John 9 is really what he said in John 3. It's said in a very different way. It seems like a, a contradictory way. It's not, and we'll get to it when we get to it in context. But he's saying the exact same thing. I mean, Jesus knows the order of the Bible. He knew that John 3 was going to say, I didn't come to judge the world, and he knew John 9 was going to say, I came to judge the world. So what does John 3 mean? 
What does it mean? Jesus makes judgmental statements. He does judge. What does it mean? This is what it means. And here's the key in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. If you are a star, circler, underliner, this is the already is the word you want to underline. That is the, the word that defines why Jesus did not come to the world to judge it. He didn't have to come to judge because the world is already judged. He didn't need to come to pronounce a sentence of judgment because the sentence had already been passed. And this is the truth of that statement. This is so massive. Jesus did not come to spiritually neutral people. He did not come as God come in the flesh to a a spiritually neutral people group who will decide, "Mm, I think he's great stuff and I'm going to be pro-Jesus or will decide, "Mm, I don't really like him, be anti-Jesus. If we were judged already, that means that Jesus came not to neutral people, but to guilty people. He didn't come to people saying, hey, do you want me? Because we have a choice of, I'll be pro or against. He didn't come to rally for himself and say, hey, vote for me. He came to save guilty people, not try to sway neutral people's decisions. We've been judged already. Drop down to verse 36, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God, what does your Bible say? Remains or abides. What does that word mean? It means that it's, it's not at that moment that wrath comes. It's already been there. It's already existed there. So Jesus isn't coming to spiritually neutral people to figure out who's going to follow me and who's not. He's coming with a rescue mission to bring life to dead people. And this is everything we studied a couple weeks ago of why the spiritual birth, the new birth, is a necessity. Why does Jesus say you must be born again? Because you are spiritually dead. These are the ten reasons that we gave two weeks ago for why the new birth is a necessity. Just think about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We are all, by nature, children of wrath, but God's wrath abides on us. We're all under it. It remains on us. And Jesus is simply coming to take it away. By the way, this is very helpful in evangelism. Um, How many many of you have heard when you're sharing the gospel and you're asking people how they know they're going to get to heaven, they say something to the effect of, I know I'm not the best person, but my good's going to outweigh my bad. Right? We've all heard that, right? This verse proclaims the truth to us that that reasoning is irrelevant. That reasoning says, I'm going to hear a verdict when I die, and I'm going to work hard to make sure when I die, the verdict is, I'm a good person. I'm going to work hard here, and then the verdict will be passed. This verse says, the verdict's already been passed. You know when the verdict's been passed? It was passed when you came into the world. You came into the world... As a sinner by nature, God's wrath abides on you. You are judged already. Therefore, the verdict's already passed. You can do whatever you want to in this life to try and get it to be removed. It will not be removed. It's already on you. So, Jesus did not come to take neutral people and give them a choice. Jesus came on a rescue mission to pluck out those who would believe. Jesus came to make guilty people not guilty. And he came to make dead people alive. That's verses 17 through 18. Now, verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. So here we have the question, Why would anybody not believe in Jesus? If all it takes, I mean, think of John 3.16. It's an infinitely costly Sacrifice. God is giving his son. It's an infinitely wide offer. Anyone, whosoever, it's given. The, the offer is given to everyone. So why would everyone not jump on that offer? Since, especially since, all the offer is saying is, believe in me and you will have eternal life. You don't need to do anything. 
It's costly to Jesus. It doesn't really cost us anything to just say, I believe repentance brings a cost, but it's not really a cost in the end. Those of you who know Jesus know that. So why would somebody say, I don't want to believe? This is verses 19 through 20. The foundation of unbelief. The foundation. What is unbelief at its core? What is the nature of unbelief? Where does it come from? Let's read verses 19 through 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Who's the light? Um, The light is very clearly Jesus. In context, John 1 says that Jesus is the light in John's first epistle, 1 John. um, I believe it's 2.15. It says that Jesus, uh, that God, in God there is no darkness at all. God is light. John tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of who God the Father is, that Jesus is God, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, so if there is no darkness in God, and God is only light, and Jesus is God, then Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. He has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This paints a picture of an unbeliever. And there are five aspects in these two verses of what unbelief looks like. Let me give them to you just quickly as we go through, and then we'll, we'll make notes on them. Number one, an unbeliever's works are evil. Their works are evil. Um, this is at the end of verse 19. Their deeds were evil. In the beginning of verse 20, whoever does evil. So their works are evil. That's called sin, right? All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. This is a picture of all of us before Christ. Number two, they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. Their works are evil, but number two, they don't want those works to be exposed. This is verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is like um, cockroaches in the middle of the night. That's their heyday. Um, And when you turn those lights on, they scatter. They don't like the light. They want the darkness. That's an unbeliever. Number three, they love darkness. They love it. Unbelievers love darkness. Why? Because darkness is safe for them. They love darkness. This is verse 19, middle of verse 19. And men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil and because the light exposes their deeds. You realize this is a love affair. This is an issue of love. What do you love? What do you adore? What do you cherish? What do you treasure? An unbeliever treasures darkness. Number four, they hate the light, so they love darkness, they hate the light. That makes sense. No one can serve two masters. Either he will be devoted to to one and despise the other, or he will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. So if you love darkness, you can't just think the light's not the best, but it's okay. If you love darkness, you will hate the light, and if you love the light, you will hate the darkness. Since they hate the light, this is verse 20, they hate the light. Number five, they don't come to the light. Since they hate the light, they don't come to the light. That's the end of verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. So, five points, a picture of an unbeliever. Their works are evil. They don't want their evil to be exposed. They love darkness because it's safe for them. They hate the light and they don't come to the light. By the way, if you're a believer here this morning, that was you. You were the world. Jesus called you out of it. You and I were sinners. We were never fully in sync with how beautiful Jesus is. We never figured that out. An unbeliever very simply says, Jesus is not lovely. And a believer very simply says, Jesus is lovely. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have ever done that ever perfectly 100% of the time. We love our sin. We don't love God. We love our sin so much that we don't want our sin to be exposed and taken away. We don't come to Jesus because we know if we come to Jesus, 
as unbelievers, we come to him and he's going to show the light of the gospel, the light of grace. He's going to show that light and it's going to tell us what our sin is and tell us that we have to do something with it. We don't want to do something with it. We love it. We want to coddle it. So we don't want it to be exposed. By the way, this does not mean that people don't commit public deeds and flaunt their public sin. Obviously they do. Again, this verse actually proves what's happening. If a culture has become so hardened to the gospel and to God, and if a culture has pushed away the light so much and dimmed that light, and so they're living in darkness, then they can flaunt their sin inside of that darkness because nobody's going to expose them. It's exactly what happens in Romans 1. Romans 1, when a nation finally rejects their God and says, we do not want you, God gives them over, and the last thing on that list that they are given over to is doing evil and commending others to do the same evil and applauding them when they do that evil. So there is absolutely public sin being flaunted, which gives us further reason to cry out to God and say, please save us, save our country, save our nation, because right now it absolutely looks like they've rejected the light, and darkness reigns supreme, so they flaunt their sin. We see that every day. By the way, the exact opposite of this, if you think of a culture and a context that is so dark that's shunning the light, the exact opposite of this is what we'd call revival. When the gospel brings revival and light starts on the inside of that darkness and starts to illuminate the darkness and sin is driven out, That's what we pray for. That happens through churches. If churches catch on fire for God, then revival can be brought about by God's grace. This is a picture. All of this is a picture of unbelief. This is a picture of unbelief. The judgment that's coming in the world is not Jesus saying, I'm going to judge you. It's you saying, I don't want to follow Jesus. That's the judgment. Jesus doesn't need to do anything. He just needs to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And through that you are judged if you don't follow him. But you're judged already. And why are you judged? Because you love the darkness, you hate the light, and because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. We need to be clear here. When we talk about heaven and hell, we talk about very serious eternal realities. Let me be very clear. These verses tell us people do not go to hell primarily because of what they do. People go to hell primarily because of what they do not do. And what they do not do is very simply believe. They do not believe. One commentator says it this way, and I think this is very Specific, very tailored. I want to read his words because I think that they are very helpful. And I think if you boil this all down, even as I read these, as I read them myself, you can hear other passages and kind of kick against it, but I want you to listen carefully with these verses in mind. I believe that John MacArthur is right in what he's saying in his commentary here on these verses. He says this, You are not in hell because of some decree that God makes. You are not in hell because Jesus died for only a few people or somehow his provision in his death is deficient. You are not in hell because of your sin and because you have broken God's law. Those sins are forgivable. What is unforgivable is unbelief in Jesus. No one in hell will say, I have no idea why I'm here. No one in hell will say, well, I know I'm here. It's because God predestined that I would be here. No one in hell will be able to say anything other than, I know exactly why I'm here, and it's because I did not believe in Jesus. Some people might complain. They might say, no, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. It's God's fault that I'm here. No, it's not. It's your fault. You didn't believe. Some people might say, kind of like Adam, it's other people's fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's, It's her fault. No, no, no. You're responsible for you. 
And if you choose to not believe, then you pay the consequence for it. Some people can complain all the way to Adam. If I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned. Adam sinned. He plunged us all into sin. It's not my fault. It's his. Some people say, it's my nature. What am I going to do? I'm born as a sinner. It's not my fault. Some people say, it was passed down to me through corrupt parents. It was my circumstances. You'd be just as bad as I am if you had lived inside of my circumstances. All sorts of excuses that people give, none of them matter. All that will matter on the last day is, did you believe in Jesus and follow him as Lord and Savior, or did you choose to not? Did you choose to spurn him in unbelief? That's the issue. When you stand before God, if you want to try out all of those other excuses, he's going to say, that's fine, I'm not judging you for that. I'm not judging you for Adam's sin. I'm not judging you for your parents' sin. I'm not judging you for your circumstances. I'm not judging you for any of that. I'm judging you for you. Did you believe in Jesus Christ? No? Then depart from me, I never knew you. The only reason that people do not come to Christ and believe in him in these verses is they love their sin. They love their sin. That's a picture of unbelief. Verse 21 is a picture of the positive. It's a picture of belief. Why don't people believe, Nicodemus might be asking. You and I are probably asking. Well, they don't believe because they love their sin more. What Jesus has to offer them is cool, but it's not as cool as their sin. What Jesus has to offer them sounds interesting, but ultimately they want their sin. What about belief? Is it the opposite? Is it they hate their sin and they love the light? That's part of it. Go to verse 21. But, we already saw in verse 16 a very big but, um, shall not perish but have eternal life. This is another huge but. But, instead of somebody who loves the darkness and hates the light, instead, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So, does what is true. What's, what is that? Believes in the gospel, follows Jesus Christ all of his days, all of her days. That is the person who believes. That is the person who is saved. In contrast to the person who says, I don't want to come to the light, this person does. And they, they are the ones that do it, right? You come to the light. You repent. You turn. You follow. You believe. It is all a work of you doing. Yes. And this is where Jesus ties it all together. He says, so that his deeds, the deeds namely that you practice the truth in coming to the light, that you believe in Jesus, that you love him more than you love your sin, all of those things are the opposite of the unbelief in verses 19 through 20. All of those deeds are seen in a believer for the purpose that they may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I like the ESV in this better. Um, they, They might be seen as being carried out by God. So you believe, but the only way you could have believed is if the new birth had happened in your life, and God worked that. These deeds that we see, the belief that you have, and you have it, you repent, you believe, you do the work, but you do it as an evidence that God first breathed life into you. That's the purpose of the new birth. That's where Jesus is tying in the new birth and belief together. They seemed like a tension New birth, you don't do anything to get it. Believe, you do everything to believe. How does it work? Here's how it works. You believe, but you believe uh, proves, your believing proves that the new birth has taken place in your life. It proves that. Just think about Lazarus. I know we go back to Lazarus, but just think about him. Um, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Then he did not run behind Lazarus, pick him up, and puppet him out of the tomb. He breathes life into him, and then Lazarus does the walking, does the repentance, does everything else, does the belief. Same thing with you and I. We believe, we repent, we turn, we do that. But we do that as evidence that God has brought life to dead people. We do that as evidence that God has carried out a work in us that otherwise, if he hadn't done it, we wouldn't be able to give those evidences of works in our lives. This is everywhere in Scripture, right? Ephesians 2, I mean, I'm sure verses are coming to your mind right away. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 
by grace you've been saved. It's not a result of works. No one can boast. God's the one that saves you. But you work. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You need to work. But at the end of that, those works were given to us by God. They were predestined for us to walk in. Why? So that God can be the one who's on display, not us. You believed, but you believed because God gave you life. Now, this is where some people say, remember we talked last week about the tension. We, we have mystery. We have two sides of the same coin, and there's tension, there's mystery. It's where some people just, when they see things like this, they see a mysterious deep end of a theological pool, and they just dive right in. They say, I want in on this one. This is where questions like this come. Well, what if I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm not elect, I'm not called, and God therefore will not breathe new life into me? Maybe you've had that question. I don't want to dismiss that question, because I've heard that question way more times than I could even count. People trying to, to bring a conundrum to predestination, to, to free will, to choosing, to all that stuff, to, to adoration... If I can use the words of my seminary professor, he would say to me, Patrick, that don't make a lick of biblical sense. That's a non sequitur. That that question doesn't make biblical sense. To ask, what if I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm not predestined, I'm not elect? In your mind, that's a picture of you knocking on heaven's door, saying, I want in, and God goes, oh, we've got another that wants in. Takes out his books, goes, oh, I'm sorry, you're not elect. Get out of here. There's so much wrong with that statement. But just in this passage, if you are wanting to believe in Jesus Christ, the new birth has taken place in your life. If you want to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's no conundrum. The new birth has taken place, and if the new birth has taken place in your life, you are elect. God did call you. If you want to believe in Jesus Christ, John 6 will tell you, you go to him and he will never cast anyone out. You go. And in your going, you will prove that God was working in your heart all along. If you have the desire to believe, then God has already regenerated your heart. If you want to turn to him as Lord and Savior and follow him all of, the, all of your days, God's worked the new birth in you. And this makes sense theologically with everything we've studied. This is why the new birth is a necessity, because we are all dead in our sins. Nobody is trying to get to God. Nobody is knocking on the door saying, I want in, and God's saying, I'm sorry, I didn't choose you. God did not come. Remember, Jesus did not come to a, a spiritually neutral people. This is, by the way, if I can just put a plug in for church history. This is why you need to know church history. This is church history right here. This is Augustine and Pelagius debating with each other. Augustine saying, everyone is born with a sin nature. They can't choose God. They're spiritually dead. And Pelagius saying, no, everybody's born innocent with the ability to choose or not choose. When you sin, you become a sinner. Augustine said, no, you sin because you are a sinner. That's what's in this text. You're judged already. The wrath of God abides on you because you are already condemned. We are all running our hell-bound race as we sing constantly at this church. As I ran my hell-bound race indifferent to the cost, I just keep running. I hate the light. I love the dark. And God plucks me out. Nobody's saying I want in and God turns them away. No one. What's the ultimate contrast between believer and unbeliever in these verses? There are two contrasts. They're not ultimate, but they're helpful. One hates the light, the other loves it. But that's not ultimate. One believes and comes to Jesus, the other doesn't. But that's not ultimate. What's the ultimate difference? The wind blows in the life of one and doesn't in the the life of the other. That's the whole point of this section. Nicodemus, Nicodemus has been doing good works for the purpose of what? Verse 21 tells us that the purpose that God has given us good works to do is so that they can reveal God's working in us. God has graciously moved in our lives. Nicodemus has been doing good works, but why does he do good works? They're to show you that Nicodemus has been working in his life. He's been working hard to clean himself up. He was doing all of those good works so that the world would see that those works had been carried out by him. 
So I ask you, why do you do good works, believer? To be noticed? To earn God's favor? No, you already have it in Christ. To earn heaven? No, Jesus is your meritorious great high priest. So why do we do good works? We do good works to show the world that the works that we do could never have been done except for God working in us. Matthew 5, so that, let your good works shine like a light so that your Father would be glorified in heaven as unbelievers look. And they go, what is this? They don't even know God, but they can see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. By the way, this is where assurance comes from. If you see good works, if you see affections for Jesus, there's no way you can love Jesus if you don't have a new heart. So if you love Jesus, you have a new heart. And if you have a new heart, then you are saved. It brings assurance. God is working in your life. All you have to do is do what Jesus said earlier. Admit that you are going to die. The snake has bit you. Your sin has consumed you. You love the darkness. You hate the light. And you are condemned for it. And you come to Jesus and you say, Help. Not once. Not twice. Not help me out of this one and I'll be back on my own two feet. Coming to Jesus is admitting and declaring that for the rest of your life you will be on the welfare of his grace. And you need to be okay with that. You need to be okay with that. Is that below you? Do you need to pick yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps? Or do you want God's grace to be seen so much in your life that you're fine with being utterly shattered before him? And you say, I'm fine. Give me grace till my dying day. Give me grace so that others can see you through me. Turn to Romans 9, just really quickly before we close. I want to show you just one, one other passage on this tension. This has been the most helpful passage for me on this tension. I think it's very clear. And again, there is mystery. What is mysterious to us? We leave to God. We don't say we can know it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, those are things that belong to God. But what has been revealed, for instance, this, what we've studied already, and this, what we're about to look at, what has been revealed to us is ours. And we need to cling to it and submit to it. How does this work? Belief and unbelief. God choosing, God not. Verse 19, Romans chapter 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God find fault when earlier... God is the one who had hardened Pharaoh's heart. So why does God say Pharaoh is judged when God was the one who hardened his heart? There's a lot of reasons why, but the bottom line that Paul's going to say, he's going to give two reasons. Number one, God's God and he can do what he wants. Number two, Pharaoh was already hardening his heart. He would have done it anyway. He was doing it. God didn't force him to do something he didn't want to do. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, that answers back to God? So, answer number one to all of these mysterious things is God can do what he wants. You are the thing molded, and you're not going to say to the molder, why'd you make me like this? Verse 21, does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Can God do whatever he wants? Absolutely. And then here's the key. Verse 22, what if, although God is willing to demonstrate his wrath, he could instantly just say, you're judged, everybody's judged, boom, we're done. He endures with much patience because he loves the world and desires for none to perish. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, number one, if God is going to be God, God has to have his hand in everything that happens. He has to. That's the whole reason why James is going to bring about the the contrast of sin, um, God's hand needs to be in everything. If it's not, he's not God. Um, if he's not controlling, moving, purposing, ordaining, he's not God. That's why James says, no one when they are tempted can say that God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted nor does he tempt anyone. He's involved in everything, but he doesn't tempt. He's not able to sin. That's not possible for him, but he's involved in everything because he's God. That's what it means to be God. So he's involved in believers and he's involved in non-believers. Is he involved in the same way? This is what Jonathan Edwards would preach. This is a theology called double predestination that I think is absolutely biblical. But it's qualified, and Jonathan Edwards qualifies it, and the Bible qualifies it. 
What if God, verse 22, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So we have two vessels. And it appears in my Bible, probably in yours as well, that we have two people groups, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And it seems like we just kind of have a 50-50. God says, you go to heaven, you go to hell. Just kind of a big chess match. And he just gets to do whatever he wants and that's it. This is where the Greek is so helpful. It's so annoying because it's so technical and it's so challenging and it's so hard to learn. But that's why God wrote the Bible, the New Testament in Greek, to, to nuance and clarify these tension issues. Vessels of wrath prepared, end of verse 22, that word prepared, though it looks like it's the exact same word for prepared in verse 23, is actually, number one, it's a different word altogether. Okay? If Paul wanted us to know that Jesus predestines in the exact same way people for heaven and people for hell in the identical same way, number one, he would have used the same word. He doesn't. So they're obviously prepared in different ways. But number two, Greek has something called a voice. We don't really have this. We, we structure our sentences to have this inside of it. Greek has an active voice and a passive voice and a middle voice. Active means you're working on something. Passive means it's happening on its own, basically. So, verse 22, God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, unique word, in... The passive voice. This is prepared in a passive way. Meaning what? God doesn't have to do anything for people to go to hell. He's God, so he has to have his hand inside of everything. But he doesn't have to do anything. He's not forcing anybody to go to hell. No spiritually neutral people. We're all running our race to hell. We all hate God. We're born children of wrath. He doesn't, he's passively watching. He doesn't have to push They're prepared because, again, God is God and he has to prepare. He has to ordain. He has to predestine. That's who he is. But he's not pushing anybody to hell. Again, please know, no one in hell is able to say, I didn't want to be here. I wanted to believe in God, but God forced me to go here. No. Verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared. Prepared, different word than verse 22. So it's obviously a different kind of preparation. But it's also specifically a different voice. It's the active voice, meaning that if he didn't uh, actively be, if he wasn't actively involved in it, it wouldn't happen. It's the exact opposite from the passive, right? It makes sense. Active, passive. Passive. If God doesn't do anything with the vessels of wrath, they, they go on their way to hell. They don't care. If God just stands back and lets them go, they go. God doesn't have to push them. But vessels of mercy prepared for glory, if God were to stand back and watch them, they wouldn't go to heaven. God has to actively get inside, and this is the whole point of John 3. Jesus was not sent into the world to judge the world. He was sent in the world. Everybody's being judged already. They're going their separate way. He was sent into the world to pull people, in an active sense, vessels of mercy prepared for glory, to pull them to himself. And when he does that and breathes new life into you, you will believe that he is more glorious than you could possibly comprehend. So back to John 3. Back to John 3. Let me just summarize these passages and this whole section of Scripture. Beautiful, brilliant section of Scripture. Summarize it this way. There is, in these verses, a kind of judgment that came into the world when Jesus came into the world. There is a kind of judgment. And this judgment... Verse 19, this is the judgment. This judgment, when the light came into the world, reveals that the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart of man. It's your fault if you don't go to Jesus. And the grace of coming to Jesus comes from the heart of God. It's not your fault if you come to Jesus. It's God's doing. Said another way, the coming of Jesus into the world clarifies that unbelief is our fault and belief is a gift from God. That's the end of verse 21. We go, we believe, we repent, we practice truth, we go to the light so that it would be proven that God worked those things in and through us. So said another way, if we do not come to Christ, but we eternally perish, we magnify God's justice in our own condemnation. He's just, we're judged already. He didn't push us there or force us there. 
If we do come to Christ and we do have eternal life, we magnify God's grace in our lives because he's the only one that could have saved us. We could never have chosen him. Thus ends the message. What a beautiful message Nicodemus got that day. And he never even asked a question. He just says, hey, we know you're a man sent by God. And he gets one of the richest, the the most well-known passage in Scripture. He gets one of the richest, deepest theological understandings of what happens in regeneration. What's his response? Chapter 7, it seems like he thinks, I think Jesus is right, but I'm not sure. The wind's blowing. Chapter 19, he believes, he adores, he hates the darkness, he loves the light. And so because of this beautiful section of Scripture and the wind blowing in Nicodemus' heart and life, we're going to get to see him one day in heaven. It'll be a blessed occasion. God, we thank you for the truth of these verses. We thank you that the assurance that we get from your amazing work in our lives is unbelievable. It's undeniable. Nobody could have said when, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, ah, I'm not sure if he's alive. I don't know. God, may the effects of the new birth in our lives be evident to all so that we would have assurance, yes, so that we would be able to see your work clearly in our lives and so that others would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we desire. So even now as we sing, we sing knowing that the only way we ever could have seen you as glorious, seen you as supremely valuable, is you working in our hearts and in our lives to bring about the new birth, to cause our hearts to be born again, And so you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Be pleased in our praise as we we ask, as we come before you and sing the truth of these verses through song.